I'm Wayne Rubin, and I want to welcome you to the podcast, Hard Yards in Leadership, where we explore the tough leadership challenges experienced by successful leaders along their journey. I hope hearing their stories will help you predict, prepare, and survive the inevitable challenges you will face on your leadership journey. Let's get into it. G'day folks, Wayne Rubin here, and welcome to Hard Yards in Leadership. Today, I have an amazing guest for you. Stephen Johnson is someone who's done his years in the corporate sector. He learned to be an extremely seasoned leader as he built his way toward being CEO of some some quite substantial organizations. These days, he's in the not-for-profit sector where he's leading um, a wonderful cause, which is uh, connecting to Australia, helping people with disabilities in Victoria. And Stephen is one of those mature leaders who openly shares multiple different challenges at different at different elements of his career. So he takes us through his early days in leadership, how he first became a leader and dealt with self-management as much as managing others. And then situations where he was in an organization where he came to realize that even though he was on the leadership team, that ultimately his values and the values of the majority of the people around him were really just not aligned. And he took the hard decision to say, my values come first, I don't belong here, walked away. Stephen talks to us about his journey at ProVision, where he came in as CEO and faced significant challenges in the market within their own community, but led through a number of different uh, people challenges, strategic challenges, and environment challenges to create an organization radically stronger than when he had started. But in the early days, he had basically half of his leadership team leave as they realized that the direction that he was taking the organization wasn't for them. But he talks about how he recruited people back in who really bought into the vision, bought into the, the values and culture that he was all about, and then saw us a period of strong stability from which they were able to build an extraordinarily successful organization. Stephen describes his hardest challenge throughout his years of leadership as leading people and dealing with people. And I'm sure every listener can relate to that. So you're going to love hearing Stephen's stories of those challenges. So without any further ado, let's get right into it. Welcome, Stephen. Great to be with you, Wayne, and uh, to catch up with you uh, after your recent changes in your life. So great to see you again. Indeed, and great to see you too. So it's been so looking forward to this conversation. So tell me, Stephen, like we've we've known each other for a while, but uh, I've also only known you in the, in the more recent part of your, or relatively recent part of, of your career. I know you've had a long and varied career with a whole lot of different leadership responsibilities. I wonder if you can start off by sharing with the listeners all the way back to when you first ever um, came into leadership. Can you remember when that was and how you felt and what what, what were the circumstances? Yeah, I, I think my first leadership role was when I was elected as the captain of the football team at the high school. Nice. And I got a lovely badge that said I was the captain. So that was that was absolutely awesome. And um, the reason it was so important to me at the time was because our school was the laughing stock of the sporting competition in our little school community. Everyone thought we were the easy beats. And my year with my colleagues at the time, we actually won the competition that year. And it's still a source of great pride for me 50-something years later. <laughs> and and ob- obviously won the comp thanks to great leadership. I'd like to think there's a connection between the two, Wayne. Yes, absolutely. 
And how did you feel being leader? Because, like, even as a as a kid, suddenly being the leader of a footy team, like, there's still challenges, right? Like, not not everyone probably thinks, oh, Stephen was the person who should have been the captain. Well, uh, interesting you say that because there was an incident. I don't know if you remember Dean Jones, who played cricket for Australia, and was actually quite a quite a good footballer as well. And we used to play against him in cricket and football. And in cricket, he used to scare the the Jesus out of us because he was the fastest bowler we'd ever faced at sort of 17. Anyway, he he hurt us with the ball and some of the guys never forgot that. So when we when we played against them in football, Dean Jones actually ended up with a broken nose. I'm not proud of that. I didn't do it and I didn't condone it, but I then got hauled up in front of the principal of the school because what are you doing on the football field breaking kids' noses? So it's still something when I catch up with my old schoolmates, we still laugh about it, but you know, perhaps my leadership on that day could have been better directed. <laughs> Your hard yards in leadership started pretty early, Stephen. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Getting all up in front of the principal wasn't the greatest, uh, the greatest experience. So, um, yeah. But, you know, I think it, it did instill in me that I didn't mind being the person that actually stepped up to lead. I'm not the person that sits at the back and and when people are asked to step forward, you know, to lead anything, I'm not the sort of person who just says somebody else can do it. I put my hand up if I think I've got the requisite skills and I've got the time time to do it. So, and my favourite one of those, if I can go from 50 years ago to last year, in fact, this year, I put my hand up to run in our local football club. We have a disability clinic where we have about 20 people come to our club every second Sunday and we do a skill session with those guys with football and then we then we take them into the club rooms and we have lunch and it's a big social event and you know the person who'd been running that clinic for 19 years has run out of steam and said look I, I need help and I was really happy to put my hand up because it's a great program doing good things in the community and it's a great part of our football club uh, for inclusion of people with disability and it aligns with where I've I'm now employed. So I've always thought if I've got the skills and the time, put your hand up because somebody else has, has done it and you've got to share the load. Nice. So captain the footy team, won the comp, wore the badge, get out into the workforce. Probably wasn't that long before some form of leadership came your way again. Yeah. Yeah. I Look, I, my first job out of university was with a, with a contract manufacturer of soft elastic gelatin capsules. So that that must be pumping up your tyres there, Wayne. Like absolutely. How did you get that? That's that. yeah, I know. So when I was twelve years old, I obviously thought one day I want to be in the soft elastic gelatin capsule business. But you know, serendipity. My first leadership position was actually so I'd been with the organisation for two years. I was I would have been twenty three. They tapped me on the shoulder and said, "Stephen, would you like to go up to Sydney?" And so I'm Melbourne based, Wayne. Always have been. They said, um, would you like to go up to Sydney and run our sales operation for New South Wales and Queensland? And I was 23 years old. And when I say sales operation, Wayne, I was the sales operation. So this was, Stephen, you're going to go up there and you're going to look after all of our business for New South Wales and Queensland. And I thought that was incredibly courageous of them to put a 23-year-old, send them to another state where, you know, in those days, it was triplicate memos on a, you know, carbon pad sort of thing. Yeah, and it was phone calls, but there was no technology to help with that sort of stuff. 
And they entrusted me to look after the significant part of that business. So that was dealing with major multinational pharmaceutical companies, health food companies. And so the leadership in that case was actually leading our customers on a journey. And it was self-management. So I learned a lot about what I wanted to do later when I had you know, people responsibility from actually managing myself because I was so isolated. From, I did, my direct line manager was in Melbourne and it was a phone call every now and again or do you remember telexes? There were telexes, like predating faxes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. So it was all about self-management and making sure that I knew what I needed to do every day and helping to bring our customers on that on that journey as well. So I learned a lot of my management through customers rather than internally. And then my next opportunity came back in Melbourne with with Black and Decker. And that's where, you know, after a couple of years, I started with my first teams and first, if you like, leading other people within the team. And that's where I actually started learning from peer managers as opposed to, you know, having to try to work it out for myself. And what was the first team that you had to lead, Stephen? Do you remember do you remember what that was like? So I often look back on a career journey and go, this is not where I expected to end up, you know? So when I was sitting in uni doing my marketing degree, my aspiration was to be a product manager. Because back in the day, that's what marketing people did. They were a product manager. And then I thought, if I do that really well, I'll be a marketing manager that was my career aspiration, become a product manager and then a marketing manager. And then when I got into the workforce proper, I thought, no, no, I like the sales piece as well as the marketing piece. So I thought, no, I'd like to be a sales and marketing manager. And then I thought, I reckon I can do that at least as well as that person over there. And they're a director. I could be a sales and marketing director. And then I thought, well, I'm looking at the the general manager or the CEO and going, I like that because they can see the whole of business one day I'd like to do the whole of business. So my first leadership job was I was marketing manager for Power Tools at Black & Decker and I had two or three product managers working for me. So at that point, I'd almost, I'd fulfilled my ambitions from university and I think I was about 26, something like that. So it's amazing how your aspirations change based on how your view of the world changes and and having gone straight from high school to university, I had no work experience. I had no perspective on what, what a job really was until you get into these organisations and go, oh, I like that. Can I, yeah, I, I'd like yeah. to do some of that because that, yeah. that sounds cool. I feel eternally blessed that throughout my career I've, I've done some wonderful jobs, not because that's what I intended to do. That's how life took me. I often look back, Wayne, and I go, those 12-year-olds who decided they wanted to be a brain surgeon or an astronaut and then set about their entire lives going towards that objective, I often think, wow, you know, to have that sort of plan is incredible. But I look back and I go, but then once you got to actually go to the moon, for example, what else is there? Yeah, now what? Now what? Whereas my journey, I think, is every time I've turned a corner, it's been to do something that's even better than what I did before. I feel eternally blessed that that's how my career has panned out, not because I had a master plan, but because I have been in the right place at the right time to take advantage of opportunities that have just been wonderful. 
just wonderful. And as you look back to some of those early days of leadership, not, you know, not any particular job, but just those early days, what were some of the things that you found most difficult? I don't think it's changed in 40 years, Wayne. The most difficult piece is always people, always people. So you can have financial challenges. They're just numbers on a piece of paper. No one gets hurt from a piece of paper. People get hurt. And you know, I think a common theme through all of the podcasts that you have produced that I've listened to, if the word culture doesn't come up once, it comes up 10 times. Yeah. And so if you don't have the right people doing the right things at the right time in accordance with your culture, then your life as a leader can be hell. It's something I've learned through my entire career. It's not just me. If I talk to lots of independent customers that I've had the good fortune to try to help over a lot of my journey and say, what keeps you awake at night? I'm going to tell you nine times out of 10, it's I've got a people, I've got a people issue. And it's because A doesn't talk to B or, you know, I'll give you an example of one that I found probably amongst the most interesting. And it wasn't people in my team, but people in a team that we were trying to help where it was a job share situation in an optometry practice where one person had a different view of what the range should be in that practice to the other person. So one person would come in on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, set up the displays that they, how they liked it. The other person would come in Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, pull down that display, and put up the display that they liked. So anyone who thinks that that's a smart way of these two people using their time, I don't know. But the manager or the owner of the practice there was pulling his hair out saying, how do I get these people to just stop undoing each other's work and get on with doing the important stuff. That's people. And I think when I look back, I'll, I refer back to uni because not because of what I learned, but because I wish I had paid more attention to organizational behavior and psychology. Because mm. at the end of the day, in the absence of trying to understand why people what do what they do, as a leader, you're not going to take anybody on your journey. And so I think psychology, I, I'm not trying to be an amateur psychologist, but if you don't start by trying to understand what people are trying to get out of being in your organization, they're always going to be going off on tangents where you go, why are you doing that when you should be doing this? Or why do you behave that way when I want you to behave this way? Well, if you don't understand those individuals, you've got zero chance of bringing them on the journey with you. And it'll be a constant source of frustration. Exactly. It's funny, I've, I've I've always described myself, and people think it's a joke, but it's true. I always describe myself as as an eternal student of human behaviour. I just I just get to find jobs where I get paid to to be that student. But I think, as you reference back to kind of like the things that you wish were paid more attention to at university, and that you know the organisational psychology and just understanding those dynamics, because ultimately, like you, I mean, as I kind of reflect back over the different roles, it doesn't matter how big the job is. When you talk about the things that were most difficult, it always relates to people and people who have different agendas and who it's just hard to kind of work out what makes them tick and some people just are difficult dealing with other people and they find themselves in organizations and then we've got to deal with them yeah. and some people can be really disruptive right I'm sure you've had some instances like that where you've had people who are really disruptive yeah oh, that's spot on and I think you know, all of the sort of the personality diagnostic tools you know where Maya Briggs or uh, we've used a tool called LSI extensively over the last 10 years. And there's all sorts of these tools to help you to understand 
different preferences. So the one that always seems to come up for me is extroverts versus introverts, right? So sitting in a meeting and there might be eight people sitting around the table and there could be four introverts and four extroverts. Well, who dominates the conversation? And so you've got an introvert sitting there going, I wish they would shut up so that I could actually say what I want to say, but they, I don't want to interrupt and I'm still collecting my thoughts. And we've moved on to the next, I'm extrovert, we've moved on to the next topic. And they're still sitting there thinking about the topic from two, two goes ago because they didn't get given the time to, to get it out. Look at where we're at as a world today where we're doing this remotely, Wayne, and that's fantastic. Look at what has happened through more recent times with COVID and you've got introverts who are absolutely loving working from home so that they don't have to deal with energetic people coming in there and interrupting their day when they're concentrating on a task and and we extroverts who want to feed off the energy of others, uh, you know, talking to them about some other other thing that takes them off topic. At home, they're in the pleasure zone because they decide who interrupts them. And understanding those sorts of nuances, I think, is critical. And let me say right now, I've been trying to do this for coming up for whatever it is, 40-odd years. I still don't get it right. I still don't get it right. So I've been in this position that I'm in now for 18 months And we're still trying to work out the team dynamics to optimise performance for the organisation. Because of the differences, we've got – every person is different, you know. We haven't got two people around that team that I'd say they see the world the same way. And understanding that as a leader and and trying to to leverage those differences, I think that's the secret source because it's the differences that create new ideas and better approaches to things, not sameness. So if you surround yourself with everyone who thinks the same way as you do, then you don't need them because you just need yourself, right? So I reckon that's the bit that is a, just a constant challenge, but it's also, I think, the biggest opportunity because when you do get it right, when you do get people who actually are there for the same purpose but with different perspectives, it's like um, it was a De Bono that – that had the six hats, you know, and it's, if you're normally the finance manager, come in and be the HR manager. If you're normally the marketing manager, come in and be the operations manager. If you're normally the, you know, whatever, wear someone else's hat and have a different perspective. Well, it's the same thing when you've got differently wired people. They look at a problem and they see it a different way. One of my favourite stories there, Wayne, was we decided in our office that we had a fire safety problem. We didn't have enough fire detectors, smoke detectors in the office. And when we approached the people where the fire alarms that we had, they said, yeah, we can put more in for you and it'll cost, I'm going to pick a number, $3,000. And we've gone, oh, wow, $3,000. And uh, our marketing manager, Sarah, who you you know from our provision days, said, why don't we go to Bunnings and get three $10 smoke alarms? Everyone sat there, scratched their head and said, that sounds like a good idea. Three thousand dollars or thirty dollars? Let's go for the thirty dollar option. It gives us the same, you know, the same safety. So, I, I love tapping into people who see the world differently and and coming out and exploring alternatives. Yeah, because yeah. otherwise, I just go with the one that sounds best. Yes, because it clicks as many of the boxes, and you go, well, let's just do that. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. no. Let's explore whether there's a better way. Yeah, yeah, which is the power of the curious mind. The curious mind is always looking for a different way, not necessarily the obvious way. Yeah. I want to pick up on something that you said, Stephen, and you talked about having, you know, when you've got kind of people who ha- who share a common purpose. 
My guess is that at different times you may have had situations where you had key players who maybe didn't share the same purpose. And I'm curious as to what your perspective is in those situations and how you've dealt with those situations. Yeah, took me a while for that penny to drop. I could be a groupie for Simon Sinek. So if you've listened to his material, I just think he's just one of the smartest guys going around. And for me, the penny dropped when he was talking about you have to start with the why. Most organisations start with the what and the how, and the why is sort of almost in the background. And when that penny dropped for me with his theories, the golden circle and all that sort of stuff, it took me back to when I didn't actually understand that, but why I felt so incredibly uncomfortable in an organisation where the the why for the people that I was working with was purely and simply about making money for themselves, for the individuals. It wasn't even about making money for the shareholder. It was about making money for them. So hitting targets to get bonuses, no matter what the cost, and I'm talking here predominantly about the human cost. So to the point where decisions were made that disregarded the impact on human beings. And I was appalled by that. I could not stomach that. So I didn't last in that organization very long because the why to me was completely ass about. And there was nothing stopping that organization achieving the same goals with the people, right? So the only way I could deal with that in that case, I wasn't the leader, but I was certainly on the leadership team. The only way for me to deal with that was to exit because there were too many people on that team who were not prepared to make any changes to their approach to people. And that saddened me greatly, but it also fine-tuned in my head what I needed to do when I was given the opportunity to lead an organization and actually set the protocols. So for me, it started with the why. Why do we do what we do? What's the purpose of what we do? And work back from that. And that has served me incredibly well in the last role that I had and the current role that I have is let's get everyone aligned towards that that purpose. Let's understand the mission. So how do we deliver on that purpose? And then what are the core values that help to make sure that our behaviors are articulated clearly so that people do know how we do things around here? Because the other thing that I've found, if I can segue Wayne to values, because I am a fervent believer in the importance of articulating what the values are. Don't leave them to chance. And don't just put a word up. Don't just say teamwork because 10 different people have 10 different interpretations of teamwork. You need to put a little bit more around that. What does teamwork mean for our team? What does that actually look like? What are some behaviors that we want to see? Because if you don't do that, my interpretation will be different to yours. And in fact, I have seen where team members have actually weaponized core values. So if you have excellence as a core value, well, Wayne, my interpretation of excellence and your interpretation of excellence, well, they can be two different things. Based on all of these personal traits that we bring to the table, we can have two quite different perspectives on excellence and what that means. So if one team member says, well, excellence to me is this, and another one says, well, excellence to me is this, the one who, who thinks it's up here says, well, you're not, you're not working to our core value. You're not, you're not delivering excellence. 
So I've actually had to deal with people weaponizing the core value because it wasn't clear enough what that actually needed to be. So even though I'm a fervent believer in those core values, we still didn't quite get it right to be used in a constructive way that helped people to understand, you know, the cultural piece of this is how we do things around here. It's like saying, you know, so many people have got, put the customer first. Yeah. What? So if my teammate has just cut themselves on a piece of machinery and we need to get some product out the door, what you're saying to me is get the product out the door and then come back to my teammate. No, I don't think so. No, no, look after your teammate first, you know. So I find that incredibly interesting today that you can have a great purpose, you can have a great mission, you can have well-articulated values. That doesn't guarantee your success unless everyone buys into it and interprets it the same way. You're listening to Hard Yards in Leadership, where leaders share the stories of their hardest yards in their leadership journeys. I hope every leader who hears these stories recognises that the things that they find hard are the same things that the rest of us leaders find hard too. It's my dream that every leader finds the joy in leading. It'll help you be a happier person, a better leader for your business, and a better leader for those that you lead. If you like the show, please subscribe, drop us a review, and most importantly, share to others who may benefit from it too. Now back to the show. Stephen, I'm, I'm interested to, to pick up some of this and, and put it into your ProVision days. And for the listeners, in a moment, I'll ask you to, maybe I'll just, I'll just jump right in on it. Can you give people kind of like a nutshell version of what ProVision is in Australian optometry? And then, and then let me ask you a question about it, but it'll be helpful for people to kind of like understand what this thing ProVision is. Yeah, which which people won't have heard of. So ProVision, ProVision is largely a, a buying group of independent optometry practices. So buying collectively on frames, lenses, contact lenses, et cetera, in terms of product. We also provide, we, they provide uh, marketing support, HR support, property support, because optometrists go to optometry school to learn how to be optometrists. And when they're independent business operators, They now have to run a business and everything that comes with that. And so we help them on all the things other than optometry to help them compete in a, you know, a very competitive space where they've got a battle against Specsavers, OPSM, et cetera. So that's what ProVision was about. Yeah. And you ran ProVision for? 10 years. And in those 10 years, I want to put it out there that you led some extraordinary change in ProVision because you mentioned some big corporates like um, Specsavers and OPSM, which is part of the Luxottica network. And probably a lot of people would have said, 15 years before you finished at ProVision, a lot of people would have said, the days of independent optometry in Australia are limited. It's going to die. And in the time that you were there, you talk about hard yards, I mean, you you steered the organisation through some very different ways of looking at themselves. You brought in a, a significant amount of changes in business practice and gave them a true identity and came out the other end incredibly stronger than, than than when it all started. I wonder if you can unpack some of the hard yards that you had to deal with in that journey, Stephen, because it really is a journey that had many great challenges, right? Yeah. Thanks, Wayne. When I joined ProVision, I think the mindset was hunker down because we're about to be attacked from all sides. And I think the first thing I needed to do was get people to start thinking positively about independent optometry as a as a sector and about provision and what we could do to help in that. That was the platform to start from. 
because I, I think we'd lost the motivation to grow the network. We weren't necessarily measuring the right KPIs to tell us whether we were doing a good job. So I tried to bring it back to really simple uh, concepts. So three numbers that were all important that we we went through for, I think I would have, over 10 years, I would have run 100 and something full staff meetings where they heard the same three numbers reported on every single one of those 100 and something meetings because they were the same KPIs after 10 years as they were in year one. And that was, we wanted to grow the number of practices that were part of ProVision. We wanted to grow the purchases through our preferred supplier partners of which you were one because in doing so, we would mean more to you and we would generate more funding to support our members. And the third one was grow our members' turnover because that's what we were there to do, to help our independent practices to grow their to grow their businesses. And what I found within the first, I'm going to say, six to 12 months is that half the team just didn't get that and weren't prepared to step up to the journey. I think they'd been battle-hardened and they'd lost the fight. Within 18 months, half of the team changed. Now, it wasn't a huge team. It was only, only probably about 25 people. But 12 out of the 25 people were gone after 18 months. And they were hard yards because the hard yards were going through those conversations with those people. Most people left of their own accord. I, I set an expectation where they thought, this isn't for me anymore. I set the here's, the, here's the purpose, here's the mission, here's the values, this is how we're going to do things. Here are the strategies to deliver against those three KPIs. You either buy into that or this place isn't for you anymore. And so other than probably two forced exits, I think the other 10 just said, yeah, not for me. And that's cool. I still am happy to do that with any person today, Wayne, if they say, I don't like what you're doing, I'll be your referee. I don't want you to feel uncomfortable here. I want you to do a job where you can be as passionate about it as I am. And if this isn't it, I'm not going to force you out, but I'll help you out if you need help. So that was what was happening in that first 18 months. I can tell you I was mentally exhausted from having those conversations over and over and over again. And at the same time, trying to convince our members they should stick with us because we were going to give them better support. At the same time, convince our supplier partners that we were the right people to, to be in business with because there were all these other emerging opportunities coming out of the, out of the ether in the optometry market. So after that initial 18 months of pain, we'd rebuilt the team and one of my great sources of pride from my time with ProVision was I think for the next five years, we had the same leadership team, the same seven people sitting around the table for five years. Didn't have one leadership team yeah, member yeah. leave. Yeah. And we had next to zero staff turnover. It was incredible. We had a team of, by then it was about 35 that really bought into what we were trying to do. We had the odd person leave here and there, but our our tenure was incredibly good, which meant we didn't have to spend a lot of time recruiting, training, you know, buying into the culture because that takes time and energy. If you've got 35 people who are all heading in the same direction together, it's amazing what you can achieve. And that's what we did. We grew the business from roughly 350 to 450 practices. We doubled the member purchases going through the organization. 
and we delivered sales growth to our members in spite of Specsavers and OPSM, I'm going to say eight out of 10 years we delivered growth. And to your point, the market thought the days of independence were numbered. We proved that that's not the case and that strong independence, if they did the right things, would have a, a viable future. And I'm, I'm happy to say they still do. But, you know, it, it, is, it is one of my proudest periods because, you know, I greatly respect what the independent optometry people bring to the Australian consumer. And so you could be passionate about it because we believed in what we did. I'd hate to work for an organisation where I didn't believe in the cause. I think you'd, you'd be in and out pretty fast, Stephen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but so a couple of things I want to pick up from that as we unpack it a little bit. One of them is you talked about a bunch of people left and, and I think it's a, a wonderful story. I've lived through the same thing myself where you set the standards, people look around and go, this isn't what I want to be doing and, and you make it easy for them to leave rather than telling them they have to and when you're very clear on your standards the next thing, and this is where people often get it wrong, you obviously got it right. You talked about then bringing in a whole bunch of new people who then stayed the journey, which means that you were obviously, the evidence is there, you were obviously doing a very good job of bringing in people who believed in the journey that you were on. In other words, they were culturally aligned and therefore were set up to be able to, to do the values. Talk to us about that because it's something that people often get wrong. People often sort of get into this state of constant churn I keep bringing people in, but then, you know, they're not right either and, not, and then other ones and they're not right either. And I think so much of it's got to do with really making sure that you get people who have the right culture and values with the journey that you're on. Is that your perspective? Yeah, yeah. Look, when you bring a person into your senior team, your leadership team, who then need to set the standard for everyone else. So I think too much is attributed to the, the leader, so the CEO or the managing director. If you don't have another raft of people who are also behaving the same way and uh, buy into the the journey, then you can have you can have silos, and the leader can do all they all they like. But if you've got a whole bunch of silos that Stephen says, "Let's do it this way," but I'm going to do it my way, and as long as I give him what he wants, you know, all is good. Then you're going to come a guts later down the track anyway. So. What I found to be a really important part of the process with those senior appointments, right? Everyone under that was, I, I used to still have a conversation with them just to meet them. I didn't need to check their technical skills. I'd just like to to meet them to go, yep, these, this person will fit in our team or uh, a bit nervous. Are you sure? And the best way that I found, it was actually my third job when I met the managing director I'd been through a process with Headhunter, parts of the leadership team, the managing director, and when it it came to the last phase, he said, I'd like you and your wife to join me and my wife for dinner at a restaurant. And that was his final check of, do I actually like this person? You know, tick all the other boxes, am I going to be able to work with this person? And at the time, I, I was too naive to understand why he was. I was sort of, what are we going to have to dinner for? Like, it was just, it seemed strange. But it's happened a lot since. And I'm not talking about, you don't have to take someone out for dinner, but maybe meet them for coffee. Maybe, maybe take them out of the work environment and just say, hey, look, there's one other thing I wanted to have a chat to you about. Can we just catch up for coffee? And see how they treat the waiter that brings them the yes. coffee. Yeah. 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 See if they, 
express appreciation. Because if they can't do that in that environment, what are they going to be in the work environment? To me, that's one of the most important parts. When you're selecting people on your team, it can't just be about the technical skills. It can't be. It's got to be alignment. But like I was saying before, they can't just be a mirror image of you because if they are, all you're going to have is a is a bunch of people sitting around the table just nodding, going, yeah, yeah agreeing with that. each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You need some differences, but the core has got to be the core has got to be the same. And adherence to the values. And I think you can test that out depending on what your stated values are. You can hold people to account based on those values. Can I actually talk about one particular individual? I won't name the person, but in my days at ProVision, ProVision was a very proud time for me. One particular example of a person being able to change is my proudest moment of all. And this person did one of those uh, LSI tools. And if you know what an LSI looks like, it's a circumplex with blue, green, and red segments. And this person was all red with a whole bunch of green and next to no blue. And the preferred option for leaders is lots of blue and a little bit of green and a little bit of red. So this person was the antichrist of leadership (laughs) according to LSI. And when this document was presented to this person, he broke into tears. He was just inconsolable in that that's not how he saw himself. So with the LSI, there's a, the instrument is you do a self-view and you get peers, leaders, subordinates to do an, an external view and then you marry the two up to see if you actually – his view of himself and the rest of the view was poles apart. And so when I sat down with that person and said, oh, mate, this is – yeah, got a lot to work with here, haven't we? And he said, what do I need to do? And over the course of the next 18 months, he re-engineered his whole approach to how he did things. And that's why I say it gave me a great sense of pride that, that I saw a person go through a personal transformation. And oftentimes we talk about higher, slow, fire, fast, right? I'm not convinced that that needs to be the way. And and I certainly firmly believe that people deserve chances, not not endless chances, but chances. And in this particular case, it would have been really easy to take that document and say, I don't think you're right for our organisation because that's not the profile we're looking for. It would have been hard. Letting people go is the hardest thing to do. I don't care what anybody if – if you don't find that hard, there's something wrong in your makeup, yeah? So that would have been – for all intents and purposes, based on the evidence, that would have been the right call to make to say, you're not part of our cultural fit here. You might, you might need to go and find somewhere else to work. And instead, we worked together for 18 months and he came out the other end, I think, a happier person, right? It wasn't just what the organisation wanted. He didn't want to be what that diagnostic showed him. Yeah, what a wonderful story. That's why I say it's my single proudest moment was this individual's transformation and willingness to re-engineer himself to be a better member of that team because he wanted to be there. So he's prepared to put in the, the effort. I think what characterises the that story as a story set up for success was that when he looked at his, effectively, the 360 element of his LSI, he said, that's not the person I want to be. Like, I want to be something else because I think we've we've all had people who get these things 
and essentially look at it and say, well, everyone else is wrong because I'm really like this. And, and so as soon as you say everyone else is the problem, for me, that's the beginning of the end. When you get that rare individual who looks at it and says, oh, my heavens, if so many other people are seeing me like this, they're seeing a version of me that's not what I want to be. And then for some rare individuals, they say, I want to change. And then and then they're lucky if they've got someone like a Stephen Johnson near, nearby who says, I'm going to help you. And Wayne, the counter to that is exactly what you said. The organisation that, that was the worst fit for me, we used the LSI tool as well. And two individuals on that team had the same profile as this person that I'm talking about, predominantly red. And when, as a team, we said, well, we want to move into the blue, these two guys said, nah, that's who we are and that's how we're going to stay. And that's when I knew that wasn't for me. My point being, if they weren't prepared to work through people and help people to grow to achieve their goals, if they thought it was all about command, control, power, competitiveness, it's all about them and it's not about us. In my view, you can do it through us. It's, it's not just about a couple of powerful individuals. Exactly. Hey, Stephen, you've, you've listened to the podcast before. You know that uh, part, of, part of my sort of lead to the conclusion is, is a common little game that I, I kind of uh, play with, with guests, which is, which is imagine your, your desk and, and you look up and you can see a wall yep. in front of you. And What am I going to put on that wall? Exactly. I give you the tin of paint and the paintbrush and you're going to paint some words up there that you're going to see every, every day for, for a lot of days to come. What are you going to write, my friend? <laughs> I'm a Virgo, Wayne, and one of my afflictions as being a Virgo is I have perfectionistic traits. I like things to be perfect. So if I send you a text message, it will be grammatically correct. That wasn't the purpose of text messages as I understand it, but that doesn't fit with me. So one of the one of the phrases that I have latched on to in probably the last 10 years is progress, not perfection, right? So it doesn't have to be perfect to achieve your goal or your desired outcome. But as long as we are moving in the right direction, because I think the other thing that, you know, you would appreciate this as, as well as anybody listening is momentum is a wonderful, wonderful thing. If you've got positive momentum, it's yours to lose. So as long as you keep striving to do things better, continuous improvement, all of that good stuff, momentum is wonderful because everyone wants to be part of an organization that's growing, doing good things adding to their repertoire, whatever it might be, if you stagnate, the next step is you go backwards. And so to me, you don't need to strive for perfection. You just need to make sure what we're doing today is better than what we did yesterday. So how can we do that? And that should also give people a sense of achievement. And it can be small small bites. It doesn't have to be the big goal. It can be, hey, are we doing that process better today than we did yesterday? If we've made it easier for our people that's progress. It may not be the ultimate solution, but if it's better than it was yesterday, happy days. It's pretty good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So that's that's what I painted on the wall, mate. Nice. Nice. Before we close out, of course, you're a not-for-profit these days, Stephen, and, and you know we're going to get a lot of listeners listening in, and, and a lot of those people will know you from your ProVision days and earlier in your career, whatever else. But I just wanted to give you the chance as well just to kind of say a few words about the not-for-profit where you work now and you know, what that's all about because I think it's a fantastic cause and, and, and great to let more people know about it. Yeah, thanks thanks for the opportunity, Wayne. You know, this I think this is going to be my last leadership position, if you like, other than 
in the wider community uh, where I'd still like to give back if I if I'm wanted to do so. I saw this as being the best way for me to finish my leadership career in corporate was to try to apply what I've learned over the last 40 years in the not-for-profit space because an observation from outside, which has been a little bit proven by what I've learned since I've been here for the last 18 months, is that social enterprise and not-for-profits tend to look at things through a completely different lens to somebody who's coming from a commercial perspective. And by that, I just mean they're not as conscious of trying to generate revenue and control expenses. They're driven by providing a service to whomever their constituency is. And here at Connecting to Australia, our constituency is people with disability. And we look after about 140 folk on a daily basis. They come to our centres. We've got six community centres across Victoria and we've got seven hubs that also do what we call supported employment, where we've got another 170 participants who are employed by us to go out and do work on large commercial sites, cut grass, wash cars, clean houses, sort uh, recycling. And wonderfully, on top of that, we, we build this beautiful timber furniture from reclaimed timbers in Brunswick, which is something that we're really, really proud of because it's it's quite different to anybody else in our space. So we, we have about 300 Victorians with disability across our 11 physical centres in Victoria, and we operate within the NDIS space. So anyone who's been watching or listening to what's happening in NDIS uh, will have a certain view that they've formed, and I can assure you as a provider, a support provider within the NDIS environment, it's a very, very challenging space to make ends meet. And so right now, the latest data would suggest that fewer than 20% of organisations in uh, providing disability support services will make break-even or a surplus. So that means more than 80% of those disability service support providers are losing money. And the NDIS is actually structured, weirdly enough, that they only anticipate the top 25% making a surplus. It's structured to force failure or force improvement. So we're, we're fortunate. I, when I came in 18 months ago, we were definitely in that 80% and down that 80% a long way. We made a significant improvement in that in fiscal year 23. And in fiscal year 24, I have very strong expectations that we'll be in that top 20%. So the 20% that actually makes a surplus. But again, the, you know, the, the, the journey there is you're, you're dealing with a lot of people whose purpose is to look after people with disability. They don't care about the money. They just think that looks after itself. But unfortunately, they need somebody like me to come in and go, but there's, there's dollars and cents involved here, guys. Yes, we need to do that, but we need to be really cognizant of what we spend, what we spend it on, and generating as much revenue as we can to ensure that we've got a sustainable future. And as I mentioned to you before the podcast, you know, this year we're celebrating our 70th year. So it says we've done some good work along the way to still be here 70 years uh, into the journey. And I'd like to think that, you know, my legacy will be that we set this organisation up to, you know, for the next 30 years so that it can celebrate 100 years. And what will I be then? 92. <laughs> I'd like to be invited back to the party for the 100th anniversary. So that's what I'm trying to do is, is – Build a platform for sustainable success for this organisation because it does wonderful work for just beautiful people. 
it puts a smile on my face. Every time I go out into the field with, uh, with our guys, we deal with just beautiful people. And it's a, it's a, it's a privilege for me to be helping this organization to succeed. Oh, nice. Yeah. I take my hat off to you, Stephen. You know, the, the purposeful drive in you is as evident as, as ever. And, uh, and, and how wonderful that you found somewhere that you can kind of, um, use your your skills and and really make a tremendous difference to to people who who really need it and um, it's a wonderful thing that you're doing in, in that organization I hope lots of folks listening to this look it up I guess you've got a website or something that yeah we've got a website yep connecting to Australia dog.au one of the things that if I can do one sales pitch is if anyone ever anyone's looking for a board table we make beautiful beautiful tables and I think you'd find if you put it in any boardroom in Australia you'd be very proud to say that it came from it was manufactured by people uh, living with a disability from reclaimed timbers organic finishes that's my one plug to corporate Australia fantastic well li- listeners anyone anyone who's out there that uh, that works for an organization that has a board table needs a board table needs a board table Wayne it needs a new one and one that has a story to it so yeah absolutely yeah so um, check out the website. We'll put it in the show notes as well. Stephen, it's been an absolute joy having you on board. Thank you so much for your shares and, 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 and your time. I'm sure so many listeners will have learned so much and be inspired by your story. And, you know, I just really appreciate you giving time to, to come be on the show. Thanks so much. Nah, cheers, Wayne. Pleasure to catch up with you again, mate. Thanks for listening to another incredible episode where successful leaders share their hardest yards. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to let people know by sharing the episode around and rating and reviewing the podcast on the platform you listen on. Feel free to join our online community on LinkedIn. You can find the link in our show notes. I look forward to seeing you next week. Meanwhile, keep learning, find the joy in what you do, and keep believing in yourself as a leader.